Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So it's mid-May 2023, and though you probably can't hear as much, it's midnight, and I am on the village green. The reason I'm here right now is because in the middle of the day, the road here is so loud, all you would hear is the sound of rushing cars. Right now, it's peaceful, which is good for many reasons. One of them being, I can share a noise with you that's probably similar in every English village. Here we go. That is the sound of our village pump. It draws water up from a spring deep underground that has been used for hundreds of years. Our village has been on record since the Doomsday Book, which was written in 1086. And as far as anyone can tell, this spring has been used since that time. Now, the current pump was fitted in 1898 it has a lion's head on the spout and used to have a barley twist handle the current one is really stiff as you can probably hear though it has been replaced springs and holy wells are special places in england and you'll find them everywhere we perhaps don't care so much about them today because we have water pumped into our homes, but it's easy to imagine how before pumps or taps or pipes, these places were seen as sites of miracles. And with the stars shining up above me, reflecting in the water that I just pumped up from deep underground, it's easy to see why. And with this thought in mind, Gather close around the Three Ravens campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast. There were three ravens sat on a tree. Down a down, hey, down a down. They were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. 
Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Three Ravens podcast. My name is Martin Vaux. I'm a storyteller, writer and English romanticism obsessive. And I'm joined as ever by my partner in crime and all dark arts, award-winning poet, playwright, Shakespeare scholar and witch, Eleanor Conlon. Eleanor, you're smiling again. I'd like to think it's something I've done, but I reckon it's something else. Is it? Like I never smile. (laughs) But there are so many things to be happy about. The weather's better, rehearsals for the Knucker of Nodzall are coming along, the podcast had over 10,000 downloads. 10,000 downloads! We did it! We did! Thank you so much to every single Three Ravens listener, especially those in the community who are sharing the podcast and reviewing it. I really can't believe it. Yes, thank you so much. Again, we've got some more people who've joined our Patreon, so we're saying particular thank yous to them because their support means so much to us. Thank you to Helen and to the fairy folk. All hail Helen, king of Patreon. All hail fairy folk, king of Patreon. Also, if you want more folk tales in your life, then we've mentioned it before, but do also check out the Fairy Folk podcast. That's fairy spelt F-A-E-R-I-E. Yes, yeah, that's right. I quite like the idea that we're being supported by the fairy folk as a whole. Oh, yeah, as a not, not just the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, we've also had some truly lovely reviews on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Hooray! Ecomnia wrote on Apple Podcasts, Wonderful and charming. Delightful hosts Eleanor and Martin bring folklore from all over the UK to life by spinning tales and sprinkling in fun facts, all with warmth, intelligence and good humour. Love it. That's so nice. Thank you, Ecomnia. It is so nice. First time I read it, I almost cried because I'm a sensitive soul. It's also nice to be called delightful. You are delightful. Oh, you're delightful. Then uh, Pootie, also on Apple Podcasts, wrote, Fantastic podcast. Such an interesting podcast. I love learning about English folklore and it's presented in such a charming way. Excellent storytelling. Oh, thank you, Pootie. But wait, there's more. What? Yeah, on iTunes, Tam and... SLI wrote, I really enjoy this podcast about local folklore in each English county. It's so creative, fun and entertaining. There's great chemistry between the authors who explain the meaning behind local places, landmarks and festivals. They also create and read a story that brings the characters from local legends and history to life. Oh, can I read one? Yes, of course. Uh, here you go. So Giant Ginger Fan writes, fantastic show. I've discovered this fab podcast and highly recommend it if you love local history and wonderful stories storytelling i'm now beginning to visit some of the places spoken about a podcast to inspire me to get out and about in nature what's not to like thank Aww. you giant ginger fan that's so nice then one last one from Shedcaster. this is a tremendous podcast it's witty charming varied and creative it has a love of place i revel in the presenters get on like a house on fire and seem to thoroughly enjoy the whole experience and so do i i think i'm actually blushing a little bit <laughs> i can confirm Eleanor is blushing. Just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you to everyone who's written reviews on Apple and iTunes. And please, if you haven't yet written one, if you can, please do. Not just to make me blush, (laughs) although that's a side effect. (laughs) Yes, every review we receive really helps others to discover the podcast. So each one makes a big difference. Likewise, thank you to the lovely members of the Three Ravens community on social media, including on facebook.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast, Instagram forward slash Three Ravens podcast and at Three Ravens pod on Twitter. Yes, thank you very, very much to this week's super sharers, likers and commenters, including Steve. Laura, Liam, Patricia, Misha and Helen on Facebook, Nearly Knowledgeable, Pleasing Terrors and Anna Beatru on Twitter and Rachel on Instagram, who has a giant English husband, she tells us, (laughs) an even bigger one than you. Yes, he's six foot seven. I'm a tiddler in comparison. yes, you are. (laughs) We've also had some more incredibly beautiful entries to our Three Ravens card design contest. And now there's just a week or so to go before the end of the first series, which means it's nearly judging time. Sure is. So please, let's have a last flurry of entries. We yes. are going to close the contest on Friday the 26th of May. And if you're an artist of any skill level, we still really want you to send us your original artwork as a JPEG to 3ravenspodcast at gmail.com. Anything that you think would look nice on the front of a greetings card. Yes, draw, paint, whatever it may be. So long as it's inspired by nature and the folk tradition, it'll go into the mix and we'll be picking our favourite three to turn into greetings cards and sell on our shop at 3ravenspodcast.com. 
gmail.com. Also, what with next week being our last episode of the current series, please do send us your favourite folktales. We've actually been forgetting to ask for those. We have a bit, yeah. So um, while we're taking a break from Three Ravens, we're planning to release a few things, one of which we're hoping to be a kind of listener episode of Listener Stories. Yes, and we do have a few that people have been sending in, yeah. but we need some more. So please, if you have a favourite folktale, doesn't have to be long, but if you can write it up and email it to us, then we'll read it on one of those upcoming listener episodes. We also take requests for accents. Well, Martin takes requests for accents. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, thank you to David, who sent in a folktale just last week. Um, we're looking forward to reading that, but some more, please. Yes, please. Send your fave folktales to 3ravenspodcast at gmail.com, quick as you like. Anyhow, we're releasing this episode on Monday the 22nd of May, which isn't in and of itself a special day at all. Oh, poor 22nd of May. Yeah, it is, though, surrounded by interesting days. So what you're saying is it's the day in May with cooler and more interesting friends. Well, kind of. Oh, that makes me feel worse for it. <laughs> we still love you, 22nd of May. I'm having a good day. We sure do. But maybe we love St Ethelbert's Day more. What happens on St Ethelbert's Day and when is it? Well, St Ethelbert was a pious 8th century king of East Anglia who was all set to marry King Offa's daughter, Aelfrith. I'm guessing King Offa didn't care for the idea? Uh, no, and neither did his mother, who prophesied his doom. That seems like standard mother-in-law behaviour to me. <laughs> but his advisers kind of forced him to do it in secret. And Ethelbert himself had visions of disaster in advance of his wedding day, including an <laughs> earthquake and a solar eclipse. You know how they say the red flags were there? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so while Ethelbert and Aelfrith were meeting in secret, King Offa, pitched up, beheaded Ethelbert, oh. ruining chances of peace between East Anglia and Mercia. And ruining the wedding, I guess. Well, one presumes, yeah. Um, possibly the cake, you know, just from spray. Um, <laughs> anyway, cults sprung up around Ethelbert and the like, and there's a holy healing well in Herefordshire where his head was left on its way to be buried. I'm not sure I want to know the answer to this, but how are we actually supposed to celebrate St Ethelbert's Day? Uh, no idea. Nobody knows, but it's on the 20th of May each year. Well, <laughs> it's all rather gory and dramatic, and I'm not sure it's any better than the 22nd of May myself, actually. OK, well, well, yesterday was St Colin's Day. And who was St Colin? Well, he was a 7th century hermit who lived at the foot of Glastonbury Tor. Uh, he became abbot of Glastonbury, repelled a Welsh king and his armies with the use of holy water, and folktales say he also met with the king of the fairies who tried to tempt him with the pleasures of the other world, but he declined. Oh, that doesn't sound very fun. <laughs> Does he have a special cake baked in his honour for declining the pleasures of the other world? No. Okay, but I'm still thinking the 22nd of May <laughs> is just as good as either of those other days that you've mentioned. All right, one last contender. Okay. Tomorrow, the 23rd of May, is Mayoring Day in Rye. So, the day they appoint the new mayor? Well, not just appoint. Um, at 11am, for years now, it's been traditional for the new mayor of Rye to go up to the top floor of the town hall and throw hot pennies. Hot pennies? As in... Money pennies, or is yep, this yep. some kind of local bun? No, one pence pieces. <laughs> so he, he's, he throws 20 pounds worth of one pence pieces, heated up so they're hot, from the top floor of the town hall <laughs> down to ground level for children to scramble for. <laughs> Let me get this straight. Yep. He throws hot money yes. at children Correct. from a great height. Yep. Wow, that sounds awful. <laughs> what I find funny is that he doesn't even throw pound coins. Like, it hasn't moved with inflation over time. It's I mean, really small money currency. Money money, but... <laughs> and only up to £20. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> OK, I'm sticking to 22nd of May. It's the best day to celebrate. Happy Nothing Day, everyone. <laughs> yes, Happy Nothing Day. So should I stop the county criers heating up all these coins and get them to ring us into Shropshire? I think you probably should, and they can keep their paws off my money. Oh, 
Shropshire is a landlocked county in England's West Midlands. It's bordered by Cheshire to the north, Staffordshire to the east, Worcestershire to the southeast, Hereford to the south, and Wales to the west. As always, there's a map on 3ravenspodcast.com showing its precise location in the UK. Eleanor, have you ever been to Shropshire? Well, apparently I have. (laughs) Uh, I had no knowledge of this, but an old friend reminded me the other day that when we were very little, we'd actually been taken on a school trip to Ironbridge. I didn't know that Ironbridge was in Shropshire because my (laughs) geography is terrible, Uh, but I have been there, so yes. See, I haven't been, but Ironbridge Gorge is pretty famous. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and contains part of the River Severn. The whole gorge was formed at the end of the last Ice Age with the deep exposure of the rocks cut through the gorge, revealing coal and iron ore and other minerals which helped spark the Industrial Revolution. In fact, the Colebrookdale area of Shropshire has the official designation the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, because in 1709, iron master and foundryman Abraham Darby the Elder developed a new coke fueled blast furnace there, which changed the world. So, well done, Abraham. High fives. As I recall, there's a very nice living history Victorian town. Yeah, I was able to look at pictures of it. Yes, I remember visiting reconstructions of Victorian shops, which I love. How were the costumes, Eleanor? I can't remember. (laughs) I I remember being very into the millinery shop and the sweet shop. Yeah, that sounds about right. Beautiful. You're into millinery shops and sweet shops to this day. I am, absolutely. (laughs) So one really cool thing about Shropshire, of which there are many cool things about Shropshire, uh, is that it's also known uh, by its old name, Salop. So Salop is what the Normans called it. And for this reason, some people still call the people of Shropshire Salopians, an outstanding designation, I think. It sounds like a type of shoe. Is it a type of shoe? It may well be a type of shoe, but I, I don't think you should call the people of Shropshire shoes. Shoeshire, no. I don't think that's Still, I think it's quite cool to say, you, madam, are a true salopian. Yes, it is. <laughs> and no. if you ever meet someone from Shropshire, you should address them like that. Well, quite right. And this also feeds into Shropshire's county motto, Floriat Salopia, meaning may Shropshire flourish. Now, the county town of Shropshire is Shrewsbury, and this all comes from the old English term Scrobbrigshire, because in 1501, a knight called Richard Scrobb built Richard's Castle, a Mott and Bailey keep on the border of what's now Herefordshire and Shropshire. Richard's Castle is now just a village, and the castle itself is gone, but Scrobb's Brig obviously means Scrobb's Castle or Scrobb's Keep, and over time, the name Shrewsbury and Shropshire came from that same Old English root. I do love Old English root names. Yeah. When you really draw them out, you can hear it, can't you? Yeah, you, you sure can. Scrubbers Briggskew. Yeah. <laughs> Shrubshire. Shrubshire. <laughs> now, back in the Bronze Age, the region was ruled over by the Celtic Canovi tribe, who ruled from the Wrecking Hill. Uh, an important Shropshire legend involves the very cool sounding Wrecking Giants. Wow. I want to know more about them, and I'm already formulating some sort of I came in like a wrecking giant. giant. Yeah. <laughs> so though, though it sounds the same, wrecking in this context is spelt W-R-E-K-I-N and it relates to this huge 400 metre hill near the town of Telford. Views of the wrecking dominate the mid-Shropshire skyline and if you ask geologists for a rational explanation of this whacking great hill, then they say it's an extinct volcano. But, you know, folklore is more art than science and we've got a much more convincing explanation. Let's hear it. (laughs) So legend says that two giants needed to build themselves somewhere to live, so they got their spades out and constructed the Wrecking to be a giant's hall, only towards the end of the process they had a disagreement, started fighting, and to make matters worse, a raven came along (laughs) during the fight and pecked at the eyes of the giant who threw the first punch, Ravens here promoting non-violent solutions to conflict by being violent themselves. Did it work? (laughs) Well, (laughs) being pecked in the eye made that giant cry, 
and the <laughs> tears filled a basin of rock at the top of the wrecking, which you can visit to this day. It's called the Raven's Bowl, and it's always full of water, even in the midst of droughts. That's such a great story. Isn't it? Cool. I much prefer that to the extinct volcano. Well, the story doesn't end there, because firstly, in dropping a spade during the fight, one of the giants accidentally split a nearby rock, which is called the Needle's Eye, which is meant to be good luck to climb through the gap between the Needle's Eye and the wrecking. Although it's said, if a lady looks back while passing through the Needle's Eye, they'll be cursed to never marry. Ooh. I know. I mean, it depends whether you actually want to get married or not. Yeah, and curse. you could use it as a kind of insurance policy. Yeah. <laughs> Secondly, the giant who won the battle on the wrecking stormed off, rightly annoyed, and built nearby Urkel Hill, then shoved the giant he'd beaten up into the hill where that bested giant is said to still sleep. Locals say in the dead of night, if you go to Urkel Hill, you can hear the giant groaning and snoring trapped in Side. I'm a big fan of giant theories of topography. Yeah. As in, we, we've got this hill here because it's the bones of a sleeping giant. Yeah, quite and right. we've got this because a giant threw a rock and it, and it landed here. Yeah, don't get me wrong. Science has done a lot for us. But let's be honest, hills are formed by giants and let's leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> now, aside from being a royal hunting ground for many years, the Reckon is still a special place in Shropshire, not least because every Easter Sunday, people go to it for an annual egg rolling competition. Then during the Roman occupation, the capital of the region was at Viraconium in a village that's now called Roxeter. Have you ever heard of Roxeter? No. Nope. Well, Viraconium, which is at Roxeter, was at that time the fourth biggest Roman settlement in the British Isles. Wow, I didn't know that. There are amazing, like literally amazing ruins at Roxeter, including the remains of the Roman public baths and the Roxeter Stone, an ancient artefact inscribed in this insular Celtic language, which dates from around 460 <gasps> AD. Wow. Even wilder, there's an Anglo-Saxon cross from Viraconium that was quarried there as early as the year 100, then taken to Wolverhampton, where it's known as the Wolverhampton Pillar. Huh. I think it's kind of a shame that it's known as the Wolverhampton Pillar. As if... opposed to the Viraconium Cross. Yeah, quite right. Anyway. Bring back the Roman names. <laughs> they were so amazing, weren't they? They kind of were, but let's not forget, the Romans legged it. And after Best the... Us with the giants. The, yeah, they did. After the Romans ran away, the region became part of Mercia and was ruled over by King Offa, who we were just he talking about. the dyke. Yeah, and also chopping old Ethelbert's head off. <laughs> now, he built the very famous Watts dyke which runs parallel to Offa's dyke. These huge defensive earthworks, they run right the way through the Welsh marches. They were designed to fend off invasions but I mean they are enormous. They run for 64 kilometres, that's 40 miles or so and were intended to keep the Welsh basically away to offer use them as defence. So instead of building a wall, yeah. he decided to dig a ditch. Yeah, that's right. He sure did. <laughs> now, during this period, a number of abbeys were built in Shropshire, including the seriously rural Lills Hall Abbey, the ruins of which are said to be haunted by ghostly monks today. But at the cuter end of things, there's the tale of St Milberga and the Geese. I'm a fan of St Milberga and I have a little pewter pilgrim badge, which is about her. It's little, it's some geese. You sure do. Now, St Milberga... Uh, feast day on the 23rd of February, if you've got your diary handy. She was abbess of Wenlock Abbey, a job she was apparently really, really good at. We're talking 7th century here. There's lots of correspondence from missionaries from Germany and Rome and the Archbishop of Canterbury and others about how amazing Wenlock Abbey was at the time. She was a princess of a Mercian sub-kingdom. Did you know that? No, I didn't, actually. Well, she was actually a descendant of King Ethelbert. Oh. But she's most famous in folklore because during a famine, Milberga prayed for protection of the crops in the surrounding abbey lands because at the time, geese were feasting on the <laughs> abbey's corn. And these naughty geese were all banished from Wenlock Abbey, never to return. And there's, there's got to be a miracle at play there because if you've ever 
try to banish a goose from somewhere it really wants to go. It's very hard. That's right. Now, there are several other miracles associated with her relics as well. And she apparently made water spring out of a rock and she enabled a farmer's entire barley harvest to grow in a single day. But banishing geese, that is her claim <laughs> to fame and on her feast day it's traditional to give out simnel cakes so she has a proper celebration for her feast day she can definitely make it into a saint's pin-up calendar yeah she sure can well, perhaps holding a goose yeah well, definitely holding a goose <laughs> or at least shouting at a goose, shouting at a goose. get off yeah. my land <laughs> um then though once the normans invaded boy oh boy Clearly, the Welsh from over the border were a troublesome lot, requiring a lot of defending against. To give you a sense of scale, in England, there are 138 Norman castles. 32 of them are in Shropshire. Oh, wow, they were really worried, weren't <laughs> they? They were. So it was like 23% of all of the castles were built along that border. <laughs> Didn't think, oh, no, let's defend the East Coast, no. let's defend the South Coast, but no, we must defend ourselves from the Welsh. Yeah, that's right, the Welsh. Clearly very naughty, more naughty than geese. Now, <laughs> the most famous castles in the county are probably Ludlow Castle, which is a stunner, and Clune Castle, which is a proper romantic ruin. Very, very pretty. But there are loads of others, some of which are just big earthworks and hills now, some of which, like Roton Castle, were reconstructed during the English Renaissance. One of the major figures of Shropshire folklore dates from this period of Norman invasion. His name is Edric the Wild. Oh, what a great name. It is a great name. I mean, at the time, he was also known as Child Edric and Edric the Salvage. But I think Edric the Wild is the coolest of his many Definitely. titles. I quite like to be known as Martin the Wild. Um, only, um, I'm not terribly wild, am I? No, I'm not sure it's a totally appropriate appellation <laughs> for you. I mostly like reading poetry and wearing cardigans. Can everyone call me Martin the Wild, please? Um, Martin the Peaceful, <laughs> perhaps. Oh, thank you, thank you. Well, that'll do. Um, so Edric the Wild was an Anglo-Saxon lord who refused to submit to Norman rule during the 11th century. Wild. Edric led rebellions all over Shropshire and Herefordshire with his forces retreating into Wales when the heat got too hot. And there are a couple of legends attached to him aside from being a rebel king. The first is that he married a queen from the underworld or other world. Uh, her name was Lady Goddard. And so the story goes, one day while out hunting in the forest near Clune, he came across seven otherworldly sisters dancing in the woods all of them stunningly beautiful. But there were six dancing in a ring around a seventh who was the most beautiful of all. And that is the story of how we met. <laughs> well, yes, in a similar manner to what I'd done back when we first met, um, Edric saw this total babe. He rode into the ring and just kidnapped her. <laughs> So, so he stuck her on the back of his horse, ran off, and then when he was a safe distance away, he tried to speak to her and found out that she was mute, that oh, she didn't no. understand any human languages. So after a long time, it said she learnt to speak and married Edric, and apparently William the Conqueror even demanded an audience to see this otherworldly beauty. And the Conqueror even said she had to be magical and possibly an undying fae because she was so beautiful. Wow. I'm getting it a little bit of selkie mythology from this oh yeah you know, he kidnaps this this naked woman sure and uh, takes her back to the human world and she sort of reluctantly assimilates well interesting yeah type, isn't it in a similar way to the selkies it wasn't all plain sailing in their relationship because from time to time lady goddard as she became known used to sometimes just disappear off oh. into the underworld or the other world to see her sisters and dance with them and edric got quite annoyed that he, he couldn't rely on his wife being there. Like, <laughs> you have taken Christian wedding vows. You're supposed to be here when I get in. And we're expecting for dinner at Jerry and Margaret's and you've gone off to the other one <laughs> yeah. to dance with your fairy sisters. <laughs> it's quite interesting. But then there's part two of the tale, which is a bit spookier. So at one point, after years of rebellion and raiding and so on, Edric surrendered, so was imprisoned by the Normans with Lady Goddard and their allies in the lead mines in a set of hills called the Stipper Stones. 
Where things get really interesting is that years later, and even to this day, people report seeing Edric the Wild leading the Wild Hunt, <gasps> a band of ghostly hunters riding across the Shropshire landscape. Oh, wow. So he's the actual leader of the Wild Hunt. That's yeah. so interesting. Now, Wild Hunts are pretty famous yeah, in folklore see them in Europe. Up. They reoccur all over the place, dating right back to Norse mythology, where Odin was commonly thought to lead mm. the wild hunt. Ancient examples are associated with imminent catastrophes or coming wars or plagues, or just to signal the death of the witness. So it's believed if you see the wild hunt, then you're predicted to pop your clogs not long after. In the case of Edric the Wild, the idea is that if his lands have been threatened, including by development that he doesn't like, or something similar, then his wild hunt will be seen abroad and spell doom for the perpetrators. One wonders how he felt about Abraham Darby <laughs> in the Industrial Revolution and if there were sightings of the wild hunt around that time. Well, if Abraham Darby lived long enough to become the elder, then one presumes that Edric was totally up Edric for... Edric was happy with the development <laughs> yeah, of exactly. charcoal burning. That's it. Now, recorded cases of people seeing Edric's wild hunt included before the Crimean War, before World War One, World War Two, and as recently as 2016, oh. a local farmer erecting a new barn was taking down an ancient wall on his land but was visited by Edric the Wild and concluded, maybe that wall... You could just sort of stay where it is. So he just built this huge barn around this ancient wall. It has this ancient wall in the middle of it. And uh, and he's, he's still alive. So, you know, fair play to him. Well, though, one wonders if it, it was actually about the wall or about something else fairly major that happened in Britain in 2016. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe he just couldn't communicate. Yeah, I mean, that's the wild hunt, isn't it? It just gallops past all hooves and flaming eyes, but it doesn't actually tell you what it's trying to tell you. Yeah, fair enough. Now, the Stipper Stones, where Edric and Lady Goddard and their allies were allegedly trapped and, and where they sort of live to this day, I guess, in, in suspended animation, um, they have their own separate legends, including the highest point of the Stipper Stones, which is known as the Devil's Chair. Oh, that sounds cosy. <laughs> well, the story goes that the devil was carrying a load of stones across Britain from Ireland in his apron, which is pretty interesting. I like the idea of the devil wearing an apron. Me too. Presumably some sort of cool leather apron. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. I quite like the idea that it's sort of a frilly one with, like, flowers on. <laughs> 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 anyway, so apparently while travelling, he fancied a bit of a rest because, you know, rocks are heavy. Um, unfortunately for him, it, after he got up from his rest, his apron strings snapped and the rocks all tumbled out, forming the stipper stones. Instead of picking them up, the devil left the rocks scattered all over this ridge, forming Hell's Gutter on one side of the stipper stones. And legend has it that if you go to the stipper stones in hot weather, you can still smell the devil's brimstone Ooh. rolling off the, uh, the stipper stones there. But that's not all. It's said that on Midsummer's Eve, the longest night of the year, the devil comes back to his chair sits on it and summons all his local followers, witches, evil spirits and the like, and they hold an election to decide who's going to be the devil's king in Shropshire for that year. Wow, I have never heard of a devil's king. I know. But I love the democracy yeah, yeah. that's at work in electing the king for one year. Well, just because they're the devil's people doesn't mean that they're animals. <laughs> Um, now, I could genuinely talk about Shropshire history and folklore for hours, but to give you just a couple of other great stories. A few moments ago, I mentioned the Raven's Bowl atop the Wrekin. Another interesting body of water in Shropshire is Bowmere Pool, which has a few interesting legends attached to it. It's just a few miles south of Shrewsbury. And the first legend is that under the Bowmere Pool, there's an ancient city that drowned in a single night. Um, it said if you row out into the middle of the pool on Christmas Eve, you can hear the sounds of the city under the waves. Apparently there's a ghost of a young man who people see rowing on Bowmere Pool. And perhaps most interestingly, 
There's the legend of the monster fish of Beaumere Pool. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so this one goes, there's a huge fish or sea creature that lives in the depths of Beaumere Pool, which some people believed had no bottom. Like, oh. It was an endless amount of water. Um, now, some say this creature is a merman. Some say it's more like a sea serpent. But either way, from the 11th century on, people say that several attempts have been made to catch this creature, which is armed. It has a sword which it swims along with so strapped to its side. It has some sort of arms. Well, yeah, kind of, or like fins that it can activate a yeah, sword with. Opposable thumbed fins. Yep. I mean, there are legends of how it got the sword. There are legends that it stole it from someone who, who tried to capture it. Some say the sword is Edric the Wild Sword and that whoever claims it will become the rightful king of Sarop. Um, but several stories say that though the monster fish has been caught in nets in the past, most recently in the 16th century, it just draws its sword, slices through the nets, and then sploosh, off it goes again. I love this. Yeah. And I love the, the kind of vaguely Arthurian yeah. uh, vibe there, that there's this mysterious sword in the bottomless pool, which yep. will rise and proclaim the true king of Salop. Yeah, yeah it's great, isn't it? Um, obviously, the legends vary a bit, but I rather like the idea of this fishman living in a sunken city, going about his fishman businesses, than just ringing the bells on Christmas Eve because everyone loves Christmas. <laughs> it's sweet, isn't it? Yeah, it is when you, when you put it all but together. Don't try and catch me in a net because I'll cut you. Yeah, but exactly. Happy Christmas. Yeah, exactly right. Um, now, further away, you've also got the spot at Hawkstone Follies, where it said the legendary hero and trickster Renard the Fox led a band of hunters off a cliff called Fox's Knob. <laughs> and before I get to my story of the week, I have to say... We've got a quick witch tale. Do you want to hear it? Well, of course, I always want to hear a witch tale. <laughs> okay, so this one is called The Bridge North Witch. Uh, the story goes that during the 12th century and the building of Bridge North Castle, teams of men had to lead their horses up a really steep hill with carts loaded with stone and wood and other building materials. Only when the horses got about halfway up the hill near a witch's cave, they would stop and go no further. Mm. So the team of builders went to the cave to see the witch asking how to make their horses go up. The witch said, if you all give me half the load from your wagons, the horses will move on. So the builders did this, off the horses went, and then the witch sold the half of the building materials she'd got back to the men <laughs> who took them up the hill in a second load. <laughs> I love this early example of profiteering. You're quite right. And this didn't happen just the once. Every time builders went up the hill, the horses would all mysteriously stop at the cave. They would have to pay the witch. And, of course, the horses would move off again. Apparently, that's about as much of the story as there is. But it's said the Bridge North Witch got filthy rich and then moved out of her cave as the castle was nearing completion so full credit to With her presumably enough building materials to make a castle of her own at that point what happened to her nobody knows hopefully she lived a very happy and long life because she was clever <laughs> and had a lovely uh, watertight castle now bridge north castle is still open to visit as is whittington castle which is about 40 miles away and that leads me to my story this week which has a grandiose title. Fantastic. It's called The Legend of a Cat and, by your allowance, his earnest friend Richard Latterly of Whittington. Ooh. And I will start spinning my yarn right after this. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favourite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies. I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show yeah. is absolutely yeah. incredible or anime yeah, and under this sure. mask is another mask <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on the anime effect listen every friday wherever you get your podcast and watch full video episodes on crunchyroll or on the crunchyroll youtube channel 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You would think people would care for saints. But they don't. Not really. Some people wear icons about their necks and call on them in times of strife, rubbing them optimistically between their fingers and their thumbs, but in idler moments saints are forgotten. Dead things waiting for things to do. Take Oswald. Murdered by the brute King Panda, Oswald's arms and legs were cut away, and later he became a saint. What people forget is the why of it. For a raven flew down, collected one of Oswald's severed arms, and brought it to a sacred tree. There, Oswald's blood fell from the tree, and a spring bloomed forth, a miraculous healing well, later called Oswestry. At this holy place, a castle was built by the Fitzwarrens. Some remember the first folk, Fitzwarren, the bandit king, but none remember me. This is perhaps by my own design, and I am, no doubt, like a saint in that regard. And though my bones ache and my fur is thinner in places than perhaps it ought to be, the magic waters of Oswestry have helped me live a thousand years and through dozens of adventures. Battling alongside Folk Fitzwarren, was a fine thing, hiding in the woods and drawing battle plans, raiding the rich and giving to the poor in a dozen dashes of daring do. But if you're anything like me, you'll know that a price in blood buys half the pleasure of a price in gold. Which is where that idiot boy came in useful. He came at first from Ellesmere, the boy, Richard, and I liked him straight away, as in addition to being incredibly stupid, a product of the fine tradition of inbreeding within Gloucestershire families, he was also exceedingly greedy. So it was that he came to the Fitzwarrens seeking work. Sir Ivo Fitzwarren took him on as apprentice. It was then, while in Ivo's service, that young Richard, still a scrawny boy, came to the wellspring to draw water. I, of course, was slinking through the shadows, minding my own business, terrorizing a community of mice who'd taken up residence in a nearby castle wall, and as Richard dropped his bucket into the well, I couldn't help overhearing him prattling on to himself about a girl. "'Oh, Alice,' he said, "'I do so wish you would notice me. "'Your beauty shines as bright as the light of the moon. "'Your hair is gold like a sheaf of wheat, "'your voice as joyful as a songbird's music.' "'Oh, give it a rest,' I purred, "'and the boy near soiled his breeches.' "'Who goes there?' he said, drawing a dagger and swishing it about cack-handedly. "'Come off it,' I replied, padding forward and swishing my tail in what I considered a most elegant manner. "'You evidently don't have a clue how to fight, and that's not a problem, dear boy, as if it's love you want, then steel is a worthless commodity.' I could see he was 
terrified, which was most pleasing, and as he stuttered and mumbled and staggered slowly backwards, I saw he was a ready fruit, ripe for the plucking. You, you, you're a talking cat, he said. Bravo, I replied. Now put your little bodkin away and let's talk business. I explained to the boy that base metals are no way to seduce a maiden. I'd learned long ago from a very wise alchemist that while pearls and rubies, silk and silver all have their place in this world, truly the safest and quickest route to beauty is through gold. And certainly poets are alchemists in their way, spinning air into gold with nothing but their tongues. This foolish lad, well, he was no poet. My fine fellow, I said, there's no particular reason for you to trust me, but here you are, talking to an enchanted feline beneath a magic tree. Give me the benefit of the doubt and perhaps try taking some advice. For example, why not suggest to dear old Lord Ivo that you would like to join the Mercer's Guild? If you do, he'll say yes, because Ivo likes money as much as the next fellow. And most importantly, your beloved Alice will see you are a man of substance. No mere water-fetching squire. You will become, in her eyes, a golden proposition. One to match her golden hair. Well, thankfully, young Richard accepted my guidance, and before long he was back at the well, a feather in his cap and a ghastly moustache sprouting all along his top lip. Cat, he said, creeping through the shadows in search of me. I've done as you told me, and Alice's father has granted me the honour of accepting my plea. I'm to marry Alice, and all my dreams are set to come true. Well, I didn't think much of that, and I jumped down from the branches of the oswestry in a sequence of graceful, dramatic bounds, landing at the young boy's feet. Oh, Richard, I said, your dreams are so small. You're still but a lad. I looked him up and down, very much in favour of the brass buckles on his boots, less so the gormless expression on his face, and I licked a paw absent-mindedly. Dick, I said to him, you don't mind if I call you Dick, do you? Only, Dick, I think we could achieve great things together, you and I. And you trusted me once, so trust me again. How would you like the idea of becoming the richest man in England? Well, the boy paused for a moment, and I could see the cogs turning, and eventually an answer rattled forth, falling from his lips like ingots of lead. I think, he replied, that I would like that very much. Of course you would, I said, scampering up his skinny left leg, round his belly and into his doublet. In which case, why don't you and I go on a little adventure? And that was the beginning of a very exciting time. Our first port of call was the Stipperstones, which we clambered on Midsummer's Eve. I say we clambered, but Dick did the climbing while I stayed safely stowed in his jacket. We popped by the election, and naturally all were familiar with me. I'd been part of the community for generations, and when I explained that Dick and I were throwing our hats into the ring of local politics once more, well, there was a resounding upswell of support. 
Our only real competition was a witch called Bianca, who I had Dick poison, and a half-giant named William Ball, and all William, who people called Billy, was interested in was Iron, and I made the case that Iron was hardly the thing for witches. All it does is get in the way. So it was that the votes were counted, and from his great stone chair, the devil declared Dick his king for the year, after which we had everything we needed to really get to work. Dick married Alice and inherited the title Richard Whittington, Dick to his friends. Alas, back in Gloucestershire, Dick was the youngest son, so stood to inherit nothing, no title, and so on. And so, though we gradually worked away at diminishing the number of heirs, we also started a rather profitable imports business. We started in velvet, which is a splendid material, I think we can all agree. And from 1388, we were the go-to people for monarchs and nobles alike. On our first trip to London, Dick was terrified, quaking in his boots, so I more or less had to wear them for him. He turned back, fearing the place, but after the sage administration of a simple tonic, the poor fellow fell under the illusion that the bells of the city were calling to him. "'Turn again, Whittington,' he heard them say. "'Once, Lord Mayor of London. "'Turn again, Whittington. "'Twice, Lord Mayor of London. "'Turn again, Whittington. "'Thrice, Lord Mayor of London.' "'I didn't want to push it much more than thrice, "'as the boy was never much for counting, "'but suffice to say, turn again, he did.' To start with, I had to get my paws a little dirty. I caught rats, hundreds of the things, and through this Dick made a great many friends, friends who were very much in need of hosiery, and our successes in velvet opened up new markets in silk and broadcloth. The king, also named Richard, spent over £3,500 with us. In today's money, that's almost four million. And from there, we started lending money, which was always the real aim of the game. Good old Richard II. Poor fellow had a terrible head for figures, and before the year 1399, he was in debt up to his eyeballs. We also started a very jolly sideline, selling cats. You see, mogs were everywhere in those days, much the same as they are now, in all honesty, most of them dumb as a box of old hammers. But with a judicious enchantment, we could pass them off as magic. And so it was that Dick sold his magic cat a dozen times over. Oh, of course, the enchantments wore off, but a deal's a deal. In the meanwhile, we had further election successes. In 1384, Dick was elected councilman to the City of London. Then in 1394, the Sheriff of London. Before, after poor old Adam Bam, the then mayor, had a terrible accident involving a brick, timely dropped from the top of an alleyway. Well done to Dick on that one. He timed it perfectly. The king very wisely appointed us mayor. Well, poor old King Richard II, Bolingbroke led a coup against him. The same Bolingbroke who was incredibly fond of our merchandise. I claim no particular credit in the plot, only suffice to say that both sides were admirably clad. Still, Bolingbroke, who became Henry IV in short order, also couldn't count for figs. So it was that we rode a wave of success, re-elected Mayor of London in 1406, becoming a Member of Parliament in 1416, and all the while we became best of chums with Henry's son, also called Henry because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. 
Henry the Younger, who would become Henry V, also borrowed huge sums, all the while thinking we were best of friends. When they extended Westminster Abbey, who better to oversee the finances than us? And after we were re-elected mayor for the third time in 1419, and people started piping up about usury, a dirty word, no mistake, who better to sit as judge over the whole sordid affair than trusty old Dick Whittington? People overlooked his habit of referring to his doublet for advice, not least because we engaged in a great many charitable works, and who wants to criticize a rich man who does so much good with his money? We rebuilt the Guildhall, in part because the previous iteration was an absolute abomination, and a jolly good chunk of Greyfriars Library, which was very useful to me, as some of the books I needed were tricky to find elsewhere. We opened a ward for unmarried mothers at St. Thomas's Hospital, one of my favorite places to visit for guaranteed stroking and cosseting in warm bosoms. We dug drainage systems all through Billingsgate and Cripplegate as well, because I have a sensitive nose and the smell beforehand was positively dizzying. Indeed, we opened Whittington's Longhouse, a veritable palace of lavatories, 128 seats, if you can imagine, all positioned so that at high tide, every last turd was washed out to sea by Old Father Thames himself. I felt a little sorry for Alice who always wanted a baby, but through careful management of her meals with little additions of fennel, parsley, pennyroyal, and a pinch of arsenic, I managed to keep her womb reliably empty. Nothing would have been worse than the pitter-patter of tiny feet. People barely think of the cat when there's a baby around, and even I draw the line at infanticide. When it came time and Richard had outserved his usefulness, I did a few very clever things about which I remain incredibly proud. I had his will drafted, leaving millions to good works. His bequests rebuilt Newgate Prison. After all, one never knows if they might end up in hokey, so it's best to ensure the brig is in tip-top condition. Likewise, we built the brand new sheriffs and recorder, which later became the Old Bailey, for it's always good to keep judges happy. You can have that advice for free. We also created some super almshouses, including St. Michael's and a number of very useful drinking fountains, through which, should Swan ever have the need, all sorts of tonics might be administered to the local populace en masse, whether that be for their betterment or their ill. I also rather nattily, had one of those enchanted cats done in, mummified and entombed with Dick's corpse at St. Michael Paternoster Royal. They found it in 1949, which people found very exciting. Knowing what's good for me, of course, I never took up a permanent residence in the capital. The well at Oswestry is my true home, and there is nowhere in the world quite like Shropshire. I'm sure you'll agree. Speaking of which, there are fresh elections coming up on the Stipperstons. I still have a rich vein of savings. It's prudent to ensure one squirrels at least part of their fortune away for rainy days. But it's been quite a while since I had an adventure. The term only lasts a year, and with the judicious application of bribes and a little underhand dealing, a face like yours would make an outstanding candidate for kingship. So, how about it? I think that you and I could achieve great things together.
So, Eleanor, Dick Whittington from the cat's perspective. Thoughts? All I can say is that it confirms all of my worst suspicions about cats. <laughs> You're not a cat fan. Not particularly. Um, but the idea that they're all in on the payroll of the evil one uh, seems very apropos to me. Well, I know I'm meant to be writing stories with happy endings after all my scary and horror stories. And in my defence, I think this one does have a happy ending. Um, yes, uh, nothing bad happens to Dick Whittington. <laughs> well, he dies. Well, after a long and very affluent life. Exactly, he does a deal with this cat. And this cat, you know, he's doing the devil's work. And, and the devil has ended up losing a few times this series. We've even had correspondence, like people writing in, saying that they feel sorry for the devil in our stories. <laughs> uh, and I, I have a bit of sympathy for the devil, if you'll excuse the term. So I thought it was about time that you know, if the devil himself doesn't actually get to win, at least one of his servants can. Yes, and the devil is famous for delegation, actually. He's almost uh, on a par with St. Gregory in that respect. Yeah, so, maybe oh. he has a lot of things in common with uh, middle managers. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now, if you're from England or you listened to last week's Middlesex episode, you'll know that Dick Whittington was a real-life figure. Whittington Castle is a real place. The historical figure did live there near the Oswestry and did marry to achieve his title. But, well, um, the pantomime based on his life is a bit different to my story. Eleanor, you've done your fair share of pantos. I certainly have. Were you ever in Dick Whittington? Uh, no, I don't think I was, okay. uh, unfortunately. I've played various things in pantos, but uh, never been uh, Dick Whittington's cat. Well, talking about pantos generally, why do you think that they're so popular in this country? they're comforting you know exactly what you're getting with a pantomime there will always be an update or a regional twist but essentially the stories are fairly formulaic yeah. the characters are recognizable stock characters a little bit you know from the commedia dell'arte and miracle play tradition and and from street theater mama's plays yeah you see a lot of the same characters i mean there's there's nearly always a, a lady joan or um a, a man dressed as a woman yeah in that kind of theatre, and you see that in pantomime, of course, with the tradition of the dame. There's songs and dances. There's a little bit of audience participation, but it's quite gentle. Do you know my favourite bit? What's your favourite bit? They throw sweets. They certainly do. I mean, what kind of What's not to art like? are you not going to enjoy if they're just giving you sugary treats? Yeah, bribing the audience with sugar cravings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one time I got a blackjack in the eye. It can be a pretty serious business. Oh, a black you're... eye from a blackjack. Yeah, indeed. It's a serious business, pantomime. <laughs> um, now, it's interesting because the first plays and ballads about Dick Whittington emerged as early as 1605. So that's uh, like 150 years after the real Dick Whittington died. Yet the first versions with the magic cat didn't emerge until 1612. That's interesting. I wonder what happened in those those few years to include a magic cat well, in the story. There's actually no evidence at all that the real Dick Whittington had anything to do with a cat. Oh, really? So was that not true about them opening the grave in 1949? Well, they did, but... It's sort of one of those things where they're retrospectively going, well, is it a magic cat that he was buried with? Or or is it just one of those mummified cats? Exactly, because people used to put mummified cats in tombs and in walls to defend against witches, to defend against bad luck and against spirits yep. in England as well as in Egypt, of course. Uh, huge amounts were actually shipped over. They were, loads and loads, particularly during the Victorian era. Yeah, it's um, uh, quite disturbing, really. Imagine being the customs officer opening that ship. <laughs> now, one of the things... Things about Dick Whittington is that there are older paintings of him that were doctored to include cats. So a famous version was the Elstrak portrait from 1570, which had him holding a skull. And then later artists just painted a cat on top of the skull. So the cat has a bit of a weird shape. <laughs> memento Mori to Memento Felix. <laughs> yeah, Memento Miaui. <laughs> Now, the idea of this magic cat is now ubiquitous with Dick Whittington's story. Like, Puss in Boots is a whole other thing these days, kind of spinning off into its own yeah, franchise. I feel like the two get conflated, yep. possibly in pantomimes, with this very savvy talking cat. Yep, I think that's right. Character. And there were 17th century ballads about Dick Whittington, 18th century puppet shows. He was massive in the 19th century, all of which 
contain this cat. And nowadays, there will always be, without fail, a version of a Dick Whittington pantomime happening somewhere in England. Right now in the UK, there's a production in London. Is that we should go? And there's a little like, internet search I did earlier. There are 12 productions coming up this year. Tickets are for sale, everyone. Go see Dick Whittington. <laughs> yes, let us know what spin they put on the story and whether the cat is, in fact, a servant of the Dark Lord. It's this thing, the cat's always made out to be a good cat, but I think it's a familiar. My version is definitely a familiar. I mean, it's way too clever. Yeah. It gets way too much done. Yeah. And it seems to have Dick's interests at heart, which is not something I get from cats. They no. tend to please themselves, don't they? They're quite uh, independent, oh, sure. solitary sorts of creatures. Well, one of the key moments in the pantomime version is that he actually sells his cat to make his fortune. And then he doesn't have a cat in some versions for the latter part of I really like your spin on that and your story, oh, that, you. that he and the cat had cooked it up between them and were selling stupid cats. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Cheers. So anyway, Eleanor, tell me, do where are we headed next week for the final episode of Series 1? Yes, it is the final episode of Series 1. I can't believe how quickly it's come around, but yeah. we will be back for Season 2 as we have not finished our tour of the 39 counties of historic England. Nowhere close. But for our last episode of season one, we are off to Suffolk. Yes. Where that, I was born. I could pretend I didn't know that, but I did know that. I'm very excited to hear your story. Do you want to tell people what you're doing? Yes, I'm going to be retelling The Wild Man of Orford. <sighs> so good such a great tale if you don't know it you're in for such a treat until next time then while our story's gone that way we'll go this way and remember don't whistle till you're out of the woods Thanks and credit go to Amy Douglas's book, Shropshire Folktales, Roy Palmer's book, The Folklore of Shropshire, and the website visitshropshire.co.uk, all of which were very useful in my research for this episode. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Ben Harbour and Eleanor Conlon, and our logo was designed by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Fox. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks, and such lean men With a down derry day